Persuasive words. I'm Scott Jones, and I'm Bill Bork. And Bill, this is Virgin Birth Part Dewey. Yeah, and thank you for those. Yeah. Deuce to second. Our follow-up episode. Thank you for those who have already been engaged, uh, and I've had some conversations today. So, you've inspired us to continue on here. Um, and uh, yesterday we were talking uh, mostly, although we did drift into theology. We were talking about um, the gospel narratives, focusing on. Um, the origin story in John, and we also talked about that John is a kind of origin story, as well as uh, the birth narratives of Luke and Matthew. We gave a little bit of a summary of what we thought some of the theological agenda driving both those Gospels were and, and how that constructed their narratives. So we want to move a little bit more talking about the place that the virgin birth plays in theological discourse. And, uh, and so— um, what would you say would be, I mean, and I, I don't know that we, you know, it's hard not to talk history about this as well, but I, that, let's go ahead and jump. I mean, you're, you're more of a, your expertise is in more contemporary theology. Um, so, I have many, Star Trek, I would say. Right. I was Comic just, books. <laughs> technology. Technology. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm a yeah. decent technological person. You're a dog whisperer of sorts. I, of sorts. Uh, yeah. But none of that helps us. So let's go back to the theology one for this. All right. We could do so that. Where, 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 does, where, where would you stay? Um, but what did Karl Barth say about the virgin birth? What did Karl? Well, it's interesting. Uh, Barth says that we can't confuse the mystery with the sign that attests it. Right. So the mystery of Christmas is not the virgin birth. It's the incarnation. Right. And it, it's God becoming God with us. I mean, God taking flesh. This is the Chalcedonian witness trying to figure out, you know, um, fully God, fully human. But Bart also says, you know, we can't divorce the sign from the thing signified. He, He uses similar language to the empty tomb, that the empty tomb is not the resurrection. Like the, the sort of risen life, new creation, risen life, dying to die no more. It's not mere resuscitation. So the empty tomb, you can have an empty tomb and that could say lots of things, right? Mm-hmm. Although the empty tomb does signify a mystery that is at the heart of the faith. So so it, it would be wrong to kind of, and one could argue that in the fundamentalist modernist controversy, the sign overshadowed the thing signified. And, so so it was just like- re- Just remind us about that. So, I mean, these were, what, what were the, the rallying points in the fundamentalist Myers controversy early 20th century was substitutionary atonement, mm-hmm. biblical miracles, inerrancy of the Bible, the virgin birth, and bodily resurrection. There were five, right? I, think it was, I can't remember. I, I need to remind that because I'm going to be teaching it next semester. Yeah. I know the first four were, were that. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so these were, you know, in, in the early 20th century when kind of the children of the new school, <laughs> the old side, old school kind of lost the continental sort of Protestants and the children of the new school, which had become sort of fundamentalist and modernist fighting over you know, biblical interpretation and how one interprets the reality of the faith in light of what was then the cutting edge scientific kind of thought. And, you know, these become like battle, you know, these become like red lines where, well, the fundamentalist said, if you don't believe these things, um, you know, you 
you know, you, you're not, you've sold out the faith. And it's interesting because you had the kind of fundamentalist side taking up for the virgin birth. And the, I think in the Auburn Declaration or Affirmations, they said, we, we, we affirm the incarnation. So it's funny because Bart would say the incarnation is a real mystery, but it needs to be unpacked by or it needs to be interpreted by the sign uh, which God chose to use. And th- this is where I think, unlike Bruner, Boltman, uh, Niebuhr, I mean, Bart was one of the few uh, er, people in the so-called kind of dialectical theological movement that actually thought this was important. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things is there There does come a point, and, and it's interesting, um, <clears throat> we've talked about this before, that the modernist fundamentalist debate was really, they both were modernist. You know, they both, right, right, yeah, they right. both, they both are, the way they argued, it was a particularly modernist kind of issue, which in some levels is less important at this particular philosophical, cosmological juncture than, than now. <clears throat> But I do think that's important. Okay, so what would it? I mean, you could have the incarnation without the virgin birth. What well, guy could have chosen to do that? Yeah, I mean, I mean there's a sense absolutely. where there's nothing, there's nothing, you know, essential about, you know, particularly with how we, you know, if you, like I said in the last podcast, we talked about, you know, if you take away Augustinian views of original sin, uh, which was part of compounded the need, I guess, for a virgin birth and it compounds the need for eventually for an immaculate conception for Mary. If you're not, if you're not burdened by that, then there's no reason God couldn't have done, you know, the incarnation could have happened at it really. Yeah. At any point. And I don't think that biblical writers are burdened. I don't think the virgin birth has anything to do with a sort of original sin or contamination thing. I mean, I think, no, that, I don't think so. Either. As we talked about in the last episode, I mean, I do think it's, it's new creation and yet, it's new creation. And so on one level, I mean, Colin Gunton somewhere says that, you know, it's the irony of th- this idea that the virgin birth is somehow anti-sexual, anti-creation, that so much of the witness is actually to say that God becoming flesh became really one of us, yet in this new and unexpected way. So there's this sense in which, but the new and unexpectedness doesn't at all diminish the creatureliness that the creator assumes. No, I think it's, you know, we've talked about this before, but in the early church, there's this really vibrant idea of creation and redemption are the same thing, that God has always been creator and redeemer. Right. And I think that's, a, and I think it's a, it's part of the reason I think people are picking that back up because it's a very, it's a very attractive um, and very affirming notion of redemption and i think it fits in with a lot of of current theological discourse um and that's why i think a lot of people have kind of rediscovered uh some of the ways the patristic folks talked about that but it seems to me that if you have a, a problem with the miracle of the of the virgin birth i, I mean, it still seems to me that i mean god becoming human seems to me to be the bigger miracle in other words you know at, at one level uh if you affirm the incarnation uh, but you have trouble with the idea that there could be a miracle around Jesus's conception. I, that that doesn't that doesn't follow me. I'm with you. The bigger, I mean, God becoming human seems to me to be the bigger the bigger. Yeah, I mean, faith first community. of all, if we believe in God, then okay, if you believe in a God that's sort of that, that can't interact in any dynamic way with the creation, well, then okay, then again, the incarnation becomes a problem. Most of the stuff in the Bible becomes a problem. But if if you if you at all believe in a God that's just kind of sovereign. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying massively sovereign. 
<laughs> massively, my God would be massively so sovereign. So you're talking it would about be the, the most sovereign God. So you're kind God of, is more sovereign now than ever in history. I think that's it. Wait, the fake news media will say, I, th- I think almost anything. Maybe Moses, pretty good. Not a hippie Jew, but, uh, you know, law and order guy in his own right. Um, no, but I mean, I think if God is just kind of sovereign. I mean, die in sovereignty. It's like, exactly. If God is just kind of, you know, like, then, then we ought to expect, expect that there are things of higher order that are revealed. And then again, if you look at the textual witness and it's not nonsensical, I mean, one of the things that Benedict points out in his fine book on the inventories is that these, the people that try to sort of make analogies between the Osiris' story, I think, you know, other ancient sort of, uh, mystery figures. The, the 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 intentions of those stories are so at odds with the intention of the biblical writers who right. are working on this creator creature creator creature uh, creator creature distinction, right. which is at the heart of the Hebrew Bible. I yeah. mean, that th- yeah. th- there are now again. That's not to say that God doesn't dynamically interact in ways in the creation, but the reason why these dyna- like the Shekinah and things like other things is because the assumption is the distinction, right. So you have to then figure out how the distinction is bridged relationally. Um, so yeah, all that to say that, yeah, that, that doesn't seem to me that once you swallowed the pill of a God that's kind of sovereign, <laughs> then I, the other <laughs> or thing. Or what about that, kind of, just kind of involved? Right. Yeah. And, yeah, it doesn't and even that, have to be sovereignty. It has to be a God who's involved with creation, which is the whole, it's the whole narrative, this whole biblical narrative that we know a God and God's actions. Yeah, I mean, Bart says in volume four, one of the dogmatics, that the whole presupposition of the doctrine of reconciliation is God with us. Yeah. That, that, that I mean, that, that this is the unfolding of something basic that's an underlying theme, maybe the underlying theme of the biblical story. Well, right. And I think that was like in Luke's gospel, you really have those, those hymns, wherever those hymns come from. And a lot of people think they have a pre-existence and Luke has reworked them. They really are the hymns of people waiting for God to actually show up and be with us. You know, it's been quiet for a while, God, so show up. I think that's, that's, you know, the, where the, the continuity with the Hebrew scripture story or the, the faith of Israel is found in this particular, uh, this particular time when, when Christ does come. Luke's birth narrative that has 76 figures in the genealogy. Yeah. We, well, good. You, you, you <laughs> tell us that again. You told us that yesterday. <laughs> Not 72, as some manuscripts have. 72, right, which is, <laughs> yeah, which we gave a little text critical lesson. Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the odd number is always wrong with the right one. <laughs> Nobody switches at 276. They always switch at the 72. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think that that, um, yeah. So, I mean, I think that, that for Bart, I mean, it's not that God couldn't have chosen to do otherwise, but God chose this way of being with us. And the textual witness has a real... Um, beauty, art, and interior logic to it. And so it's not that the virgin birth explains the entire mystery of the incarnation because it's inexplicable. I mean, the, the revelation, I mean, the incarnation, there, it's not as though the revelation, or there's a mystery behind the revelation of the incarnation. The very revelation of it is the mystery. It's, yeah. it's mysterious when it's unveiled. It, yeah, it's not you know not any more than the words of institution explains the mystery of the sacrament. I think you know, I think that idea looking you know Bart's idea of it of talking about the virgin birth sacramentally, I think is actually a very helpful way to think about it. You know, I, I guess um, to me again, I'm getting back to the miraculous. I think if we believe people can be reconciled with one another, if we believe that um, you can be a new creation, if you can believe I once was lost but now I'm found, if we 
believe that the dividing wall of hostility can be broken down between all the the very biological and social divisions. Now, I, I guess at one point, you know, where where do you draw your line about the miraculous? Again, I, I and and I'm I'm for I'm okay with the idea that the narratives are formed by mythical concerns. A myth is not a dirty word for me. Um, you know, I'm all right with the fact that they got the number of Midianites right. Or uh, you know, I'm kind of reminded with this where uh, all the Old Testament, almost all the Old Testament people at Princeton are there. When I was there, we're all from, you know, Frank Cross's Whiz Kids from Harvard. And I can still remember the lecture, uh, and the professor remained nameless, but he said, <laughs> he said, we can definitively say that something happened at the Exodus. That's very compelling. <laughs> so, so, all right, all right, very good. It reminds me a little bit of Harnack. We can definitively say there once was a man named Jesus. It was kind of the end of his yeah. lectures. So. Yeah, yeah. I can definitively say that most. Do you know Harnack said was asked once of my Christmas shopping? How much is done of the New Testament? If it was lost, he could right. reconstruct from memory the Greek. He said all of it, and we were like, "What do you mean?" He's like, "It's not a very long not text." Not a very long book. No, he was brilliant. Yeah, and, Harnack, yeah, and is not afraid to to send boldly. No, <laughs> with his, at least with his political thinking. Anyway. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more it's for a good cause you can help this podcast and one of the many others i do keep going to be a patron through patreon of this which i think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy again any contribution is welcome but for five bucks a month you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call which begins right now Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Charlotte Donlin, Stephen Rowe, Andrew Stravitz, Jim Crest, and Liam O'Brien. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. And Bart also thinks that, and we talked about this a little bit, like part of what the sign tells us is that um, that it, it, there's no human will to power in the production, in, in, in the conception of Jesus. Where right. even in, we talked about this last time, even in the, the other miraculous birth stories, right. whether you're talking about Isaac or Ishmael, or the longing for, you know, you think of Isaac or Samuel or um, John the Baptist, mm -hmm. there's still some will to power, even if it's sanctified will to power. Right. It's, it's establishment of my place and community in the world through progeny. There's none of that here. I mean, right. the male part of the human experience is taken, as far as paternity is taken out. And also, if you remember the biology, their biological theory of that time was basically the woman was just an incubator. I mean, everything you needed to, for humanity was in the male seed. So there, there was a sense where that, um, which 
you know, that that actually you know, comes into other Christological problems in the uh, in the debates in the fourth and fifth century and those follow. But I think even more so the idea of will to power. I mean, there there's a sense where you know we can't help but think of virgin birth based on our contemporary theories of genetics and what we know about how conception happens and all that and what constitutes, uh, you know, an insepid human life form. Um, but that's not the biology. So when they're, when they're thinking about virgin birth, they're saying everything that, that this, everything that matters about this child actually on some levels is coming from God. And I think that's, I mean, I think that's an important, um, important thing as well. Now, later on in the tradition, and not actually even later on. I mean, Ignatius of Antioch in the end of Although it so. comes through the creation, and yet it, it's at this divine initiative. Just like salvation is totally, we're saved right. it, on the ground. I mean, you yeah, know, no, I, I forget what Lutheran yeah. pastor confronted Bart once, and it was one of the few pastors. That, was it Adam? No. Not our friend Adam? No. Was okay. that it? He said, basically, they said it was one of the few times as Bart, he's lecturing. It's the um, um, theology... Um, Und God, und theology, whatever. Um, it's basically you can do it for English for the rest of. Yeah, it. I mean, it's the word of God, word of man, but it's a, it's basically like theology. Yeah, it's a, it, the German title is not quite that, but it's you know Bart's like a hotshot lecturer, and somebody said that's very well here, Professor Bart. But we live here on the ground, and, and I mean, it is the critique. It is the kind of critique of like right. you know your theology from above, which you understand that point. But he's saying, but what about? We live below, and so I mean, there is this, and you could see the gospel stories is is a story. There's a descent story from above. You know, God, the, the eternal Son is Jesus Christ. That's the Johannine story and certain strains of Paul, and the synoptic story and certain strains of Paul are other strains are Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. It's an exaltation story, and they're both true. Right, the Ephesians carries them both. There's an ascending and a descending. Right, and that's, right. that's an important that's an important mythical framework for salvation. Uh, but I think what I'm trying to say is, to finish my thought, even though that was their biology, you know, by the end of the first century, you even see it in the, in the New Testament canon. They're arguing no, but he really was a human being. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it's not even though what. So I think uh, that's it's not when we talk about. The biology of the first century is not to minimize his humanity, because very soon that became, you know, it became an essential idea, and and you know, it took a while for the church to work through that and understand it. And again, I mean, the Gnostics of the second century had legitimate concerns, just like our Gnostic friends of this century. But um, understanding the human need, what we really need, and and the hope of a new creation, both. In the cosmos and in ourselves, you know, the full humanity and the full divinity of Christ, which is pointed to in the scriptures, um, wins out. And I think that that's part of the virgin birth, like you said, is part of it's, it's, you know, I think it's impossible not to be tainted by, you know, 18th century skepticism or 20th century fundamentalism when we talk about this issue. But I think recapturing it in the um, salvation history, um, you know, cluster of these events and, and all that it kind of is promising in the text and in this first century context, I think it does actually offer a fresh view of it. Yeah, and I think about, you know, Robert Capon's book on the parables. He says that, you know, Jesus, he sees this trend in the gospel and it's the early parables of Jesus. He calls the parables of the kingdom. And the, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And he says, you know, generally you can see three dominant themes. It's present as opposed to just in the future coming apocalyptically. It's a it's Catholic. It's it's everywhere. It's it's here. It's there. It's everywhere. It's, and it's not so mysterious and elusive. And I think in some ways the sign of the virgin birth points 
points to that. Yeah. It, it points to this mysterious confounding presence of the kingdom and, and, and the utter, utterly gratuitous nature, the fact that Mary, unlike other women, is not looking for this. You know, often the salvation, it doesn't find us when we're looking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in fact, often it's God's finding that gets us looking in the first place, you know, and, and so I think the fact that God chooses to become incarnate in the backwater of the Roman Empire in a time in Israel's history, which was, no one was looking there, except maybe the Magi we're talking about for six well, BC. I, well, <laughs> maybe, I, maybe there might have been a few well, people were Elizabeth, looking. Elizabeth, right. Zachariah, right. Simeon, I mean, Diana, and that was, that's, that's a, those are particularly prototypes of all of us who are supposed to be, I mean, prototypes of the Jews who were looking as well as what we're supposed to be. But even those who were looking didn't understand. Even Mary was confounded by her son's adult life. I mean, it's always, there's always a confoundingness to, it's like what uh, Benedict says, this sense which we know where he's from, and yet... Yeah. Where is he from? <laughs> well, I think there's also, I mean, Luke, you know, uh, if the tradition is right, that he was a Gentile. Um, and certainly there's there's concerns in the gospel to that audience. I, I think it, there's a demythalizing project that maybe is often lost on us because everybody was certainly aware of the Greek-Roman myths where the gods take on human forms and basically rape women or seduce them. I think what's really interesting is, first of all, there's there's no this isn't any kind of sexual a union between a deity and a human and right conceived by the Holy Spirit doesn't mean paternity right. by the spirit yeah because you can't see the Holy Spirit yeah the other thing too is that um, she's asked for her consent yeah and she says yes to the world it's a, it's a very I mean I think to me. There's a kind of play like the Genesis one plays, you know, really plays and is uh, diminishing the ancient Near Eastern mythology myth. I think there's a little bit of the backdrop of of the Mary story, and that uh, yes, I mean, this is a divine son she's having within her, but it's not only from her for her consent, but it's an act of radical opposition to the powers and principalities. By the way, on page 573 of the new tax bill, you will note that you will have to go back to the home of your birth exactly. to pay for this. And uh, and they're particularly hoping that you're poor and <laughs> your wife is pregnant. That would make them particularly happy. Well, you'll get to fill out your taxes matter on, fact, on a postcard. <laughs> and you'll have to go home, but the form will be on the and, form. And uh, matter of fact, they're, they are celebrating in uh, Pottersville right now, even as we speak. <laughs> so we're going to say that, like, so theologically, and maybe, you know, I hope we've sort of made some sort of a case that this tells us something about not just God, who God is, but also who God is in relationship to us. The, the, the gracious nature of our redemption is it's a gift and, and a gift that, again, this is where the story is the antitype that no one's looking for and longing for. Yeah. <laughs> and that is also, I think sometimes you get a really good gift. Stanley Harawas said this, like, you know, you get a good gift. Sometimes it's one you didn't even know you needed, and then you realize you couldn't live without. Right? No, and, and you know, you mentioned, you know, maybe even close with a couple existential thoughts. Um, I mean, and, and when we get back to Mary as a model of being a disciple, I mean, really, it is our call to consent to Christ to be born anew in us again. I mean, this idea, even of the logos, even it's, it's such a rich term. And, and Mark Boyd, thank you for your interesting questions and comments today. But. This idea, what does it mean that the Logos became flesh, and what is the connection between Logos and Logii, what's in our own sense of self, our own being? And, you know, as a Christian, you know, we do make our, we do make our pilgrimage to the manger. You know, there is a sense where, yes, we are saved by God's grace, and it's, and it's totally by His grace and His, and God's initiative, but, 
I do think faith has a dimension of consent to it. And particularly as you're living in the, if you're, as you're living in God, you know, what does it mean to consent to, um, consent to God being born anew in you? What does it mean to like Mary say, thy will be done? Yeah. And I think with Mary, I mean, it's interesting. Her, her own cooperation comes after she receives favor. I mean, I think it's freedom is actually the fruit of grace. I mean, freedom is yeah. a gift. Uh, I was also thinking existentially, I was thinking about this wonderful passage from Chesterton's Orthodoxy, which is often quoted by one of our friend's favorite philosophers, Slavov Zizek. Um, but he quotes Chesterton a lot on this um, about God as uh, a rebel. And he says, in, in a garden, Satan tempted man, and in a garden, God tempted God. Actually, he says, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Mm. No, but the Lord thy God may tempt himself. And it seems as if this was what happened in Gethsemane. Uh, in a garden, Satan tempted man. In a garden, God tempted God. He passed in some superhuman manner through our human horror of pessimism. When the world shook and the sun was wiped out of heaven, it was not at the crucifixion, but at the cry from the cross, the cry which confessed that God was forsaken of God. And now let the revolutionists choose a creed from all the creeds and a God from all the gods of the world, carefully weighing all the gods of inevitable recurrence and of unalterable power. They will not find another God who has himself been in revolt. Nay, the matter grows too difficult for human speech, but let atheists themselves choose a God. They will find only one divinity who ever uttered their isolation. Only one religion in which God seemed for an instant to be an atheist. Mm. And I mean, this is sort of the keep, the keep yeah. the cross in Christmas in the sense yeah. of, but yeah. the presupposition for that is the fragility of infancy. Yeah. It, it, that you, that, it, the fragility that we learn in infancy and that we carry with us all our lives. I mean, is, is the presupposition of Gethsemane. Yeah. You know, I, I think I told this, uh, during Facebook Live. I don't think I got recorded, but, uh, on Monday, I kept my older two grandchildren. They're six and four. And, uh, they were playing with, I have some toys from them. They were playing. They had some revolutionary soldiers that I had bought there. And they had, uh. That's such late for you. I thought fifth century. I thought yeah, you'd have little uh, Roman I thought we'll, we'll, work, uh, we'll work them into the night. <laughs> but, uh, and we're, you know, I was teaching them about the Revolutionary War. And also we had, you know, zoo animals, mommies and babies. And, and. Did so, you teach them that, like, Hey, look, they broke the rules of war, like, you know, and they shot the officers. See, they hid in the woods. That was not just like we do drone strikes now. It's some kind of the same thing. Like, we were, we, they broke, we, we, they broke conventions of war and that's how we won. We didn't quite get into the lining them up yet, but that's next, next time. <laughs> but, uh, and also I had this little manger scene that was kind of in the middle where they're playing. So somehow I think it turned in from Revolutionary War. That's and, Christendom. And you they, had the manger in between the battle. <laughs> and, well, the, the manger got brought up to the battle because I think somehow the Revolutionary War and the baby animals turned into star wars <laughs> and, and the holy family got caught in the middle of it and i was you know they were playing they play very well together they're beautiful children and i was working on something and, and um ben and abby came up to me and and baby jesus was broken and uh so baby jesus did not survive the the star wars or whatever and and uh, and i think abby asked me she goes i'm sorry pop pop uh we we broke baby jesus are you mad and i said you know what he, he he came broken for us anyway. It's okay, and uh, and I think that's true. The vulnerability, not only of my my manger scene between the war, but uh, it's about you know it's it's um, there's a story in how it's uh, Susan Howard which wrote these kind of interesting 
novels, half romantic novels, half theology. Um, and, uh, there's one character who says, is it true? I hope it's true. If not, it's just such a beautiful myth, but, uh, it's, a, it's the story. It's the hope of the world. And again, um, the broken baby Jesus, uh, the vulnerability of Jesus, um, is part of, to me, a bigger mystery than anything else that's involved. Yeah. Amen. Cheeks are rolling.